Thank you very much. What a wonderful Sunday to gather for worship. Uh, I just want to echo what Chris said earlier. We really appreciate you guys that serve to decorate the sanctuary. In fact, I want to stop and thank you. If you if you helped decorate the sanctuary, I know that Kathy Cooley led that effort, but lots of you contributed. If you help with that, would you just stand so we can thank you really quickly? That'd mean a lot to us. You just pop up and we just want to tell you thanks a lot for what you did. It looks great. Good job. Thank y'all. I, I know that it... Uh, I know that it took a lot of hard work, and we really appreciate what you did, because we're, we're loving it. It's a great, I think anything you can do to celebrate the birth of Christ is fantastic. So it's neat that we got to have baby dedication for Wyatt today. You might not know this about Grace Ann, but Grace Ann Seal is um, borderline unhealthy with her affection for Christmas. This woman loves Christmas. If you know this about Grace Ann, Grace Ann probably puts up her Christmas tree, I don't know, like, I, I think at Halloween, and I'm not joking. She has an affection for Christmas that is awesome. I love Grace Ann. I love Jeremiah. And I think it's cool how much they love Christmas. Is it, is it, is it October? Are you putting it up at Halloween, Grace Ann? Is that right? Before that, Jeremiah, or am I on target? You had to put a stop to it? Valentine's Day was just a little too early. But listen, she loves Christmas. It's so cool to me that we got to dedicate Wyatt you know, while the sanctuary was beautiful like this, so thank you for doing that. And it'll be cool to watch Wyatt grow up in this sanctuary every Christmas, worshiping the Lord as, as we decorate, and who knows what God will do with him one day. How cool was that? Jeremy Stroh's just gotten back from Burkina Faso. They had 500 people in a country that is mostly Muslim or animistic. 500 people came together to watch the Jesus film. Uh, they had a very successful Bible school, lots of great ministry in Africa with the team that were going over Thanksgiving holidays to Burkina Faso. Man, we're so glad to have you guys back. Uh, as you're getting ready to celebrate Advent at home, inside the bulletin, you find the bulletin insert. It's got information about ways that you can contribute to local opportunities to serve and give thanks. Lots of things that we can do and be thankful for today as we get ready for our Christmas holidays to celebrate together as a church. But for our sermon series for Advent, we're going to be talking about hope. I've called our sermon series An Eternal Hope because what I want to do is I want to explore the passages in the New Testament that are drawn from the Old Testament that show how the birth of Jesus, it wasn't an accident, it was something that God had ordained from the foundation of the earth. That what we're celebrating for this month of our lives is the pinnacle of salvation history. Like this is the moment that God broke in to rescue us. And so you, if you will, let me pray for you as your pastor, and then we're going to study Matthew chapter 1. So let's pray together, and then Matthew chapter 1. Lord, I love you. I thank you for this church family and every member of it. I thank you for our guests today and for every person who's come out to seek your face, to worship in your house and wait for your spirit to stir in them, Lord, so that you can send us out scattered for a week of missions in your name. But Lord, as we begin the sermon, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bless us. God, that you would take off our critical spirits or our hard hearts. And Lord, during this time, you'd soften our hearts and speak to us, that you'd shape us. Lord, that we could worship you and hear your words. Father, that we'd seek after you with our own hearts. And just ask for your grace, for your blessings in the time of the sermon. I know, Lord, that you have something appointed for each of us. And I pray that we would discover it, that we would hear it, and that we would say yes to it for you. We ask your blessing on our church family in Jesus' name. Amen. You can turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. And I'm going to read what at first glance is probably an uninspiring part of the scripture. In fact, this is probably a chapter in the Bible that you skip over, ignore, or just altogether don't read. It's a genealogy. It's a genealogy from the book of Matthew. I want to read Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. Now don't worry, I'm not going to read all the begats, but I just want to set this up and share with you why this is important. 
Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I just want to stop and talk about why it was important that Matthew began his gospel about King Jesus Christ with this genealogy. Let's pause and think about your own genealogy. Do you know your family tree? Like For you fifth graders and fourth graders and for everybody in their 40s, do you know your family history? I think it's interesting we're at a time right now because of our online footprint you know, we can search things and find out our family history. We can do DNA tests now and find our family tree way back for generations. In fact, I think it's kind of neat that the FBI is using that to catch criminals now. But we have so much research going on right now in family histories and genealogies. Some of the older people in your family are probably already becoming fanatics about genealogies. Most of us, what I find, most of us younger folks, we're kind of twiddling our thumbs and saying, we're really not that interested. But the next generation above us, they're eating it up. You know, they're going to libraries. They're, they're ordering confidential mail pieces. They're calling people. I've had my dad contacted by folks who were doing research and my dad loves to take pictures he'll go out to old cemeteries and take photographs of headstones for some people who died like in the in the in the uh, civil war in the first world war and so he's taking pictures of these just rural cemeteries in in Preston Mississippi or Kemper County and posting them online and I had a guy contact him and say hey I think that is a family relative I've been searching for can we talk But there's all kinds of things that we're doing these days to find out our family tree. I'm just curious to know, is there anybody in your family who is doing genealogical research right now, trying to uncover the story of your family tree? If there's anybody in your family right now digging to find out your family story, would you raise your hand just so I can see how many families are digging through genealogies right now? Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Well, in Matthew chapter 1, as Matthew presents the genealogy of King Jesus, it's not an accident, it's not happenstance. In a lot of the world's family histories are extremely important. I think for us, we're so independent in America. We think that you make your world by your bootstraps. We came here to start over. We severed so many ties that it's taken us a while to care about our family histories, really, legitimately. But in a lot of places in the world, especially in the East, family histories and genealogies are still extremely important. You won't be surprised to find a family member who can recite generation after generation of their family tree because it helps them know who they are and where they've come from in the world. Now, again, we kind of have a start over culture, so we don't, we have to orient ourselves to why that was important. But for Matthew, it was extremely important because what Matthew knew that we don't know is that every family tree, every genealogy is really a story. It's not just a list of names. It's really a story. Now, if you've uncovered your genealogy, you might find some pretty neat stories. Who knows? Some of you might be kin to the royal family. Maybe so. Some of you might be kin to the president or better, Nick Saban, right? For you Alabama fans, you've got that. I saw some of you going, yeah, your eyes are lighting up. So you got your phone. I'm going to start genealogical research today, you know. You never know. You might be kin to Elvis Presley. I mean, we're in Mississippi, right? That'd be cool. Uh-huh. Some of you, yes. Some of you, you might, more likely for me, you're probably kin to a criminal or a crook or a snake oil salesman or something like that. But if you uncovered your family tree, you'd find some neat stories. You'd find stories of a, of a sailor who fell in love and then set his sights on bringing his bride back home. You'd, you'd find stories of a person who got in a little bit of trouble and so moved from Georgia to South Mississippi and set up a farm place down here. 
you would uncover all kinds of fantastic stories if you traced the names in those genealogies. Well, who is this person and what they do? Who is this person? What they do? So for us, genealogies or family trees, well, they're just a bunch of names, extremely boring. But for people who get into them and uncover the history there, they become stories, elaborate stories, masterpieces of how one family moved across the world and started over, how they overcame suffering and conflict and challenges, and who else they're connected to. Well, in the story of Jesus, we launch with a genealogy because when you look backward, you see in this list of names that the birth of this infant, this baby that brings hope, You've got really the story of the salvation of the world. You've got a story of an entire family being born, one that you're part of, of promises that God made thousands of years ago, of dreams and visions that everybody's held. And not only that, but in this story, you find great suffering. And everybody in this room knows what it's like to go through hardship or challenge, through a season of testing, trial, or suffering. But in the story of the genealogy of Jesus, when it is unfolded in front of your eyes, we see what God's up to. And I just want to dive off into it with a couple of things that are interesting from the beginning. When you look at Matthew's genealogy, I'm going to spare you the 41 names, so I won't read all the names. But I do want to show you a few things. First of all, I want to remind you that genealogies are extremely important, but especially in Israel after their time of exile. I want you to imagine their situation. In 722 B.C., for the northern tribes, in 586 B.C., for the southern tribes, they were conquered. They were taken away from the land that God promised them. So this was a piece of dirt that God gave to their families. In fact, it's important enough that even in the Bible, God's drawing out boundaries and telling you what parts you get. This is something God gave you, but they lost it. And when they went off into exile, their genealogies became extremely important because some of them believed that one day they would go back home. They believed that God would be good for his promises, that God could deliver, that God could get them through a hard time. Hey, he can get you through a hard time too. They believed that God wasn't done with them and they wanted to keep their family tree so that when they got home, they would know what dirt should have been theirs so they could work to reclaim what God had promised them in the very beginning. In the exile period, in the post-exile, these genealogies are extremely extremely important. That's why the book of Chronicles, which is a post-exile history of Israel, it starts with 10 chapters of genealogy. We make fun of the Old Testament and we say, oh, it's all these genealogies. No, there really are not that many genealogies, but boy, there's a long one in First Chronicles. And why? It's because they needed to know who they were. Because God started something in their lives and they believed he was going to finish it and they needed their family tree so they could reclaim it. Another reason that genealogies were extremely important to post-exile Israel is because God made a promise to David. Once upon a time, God promised King David that he would have an eternal throne. But after the Babylonians burned Jerusalem and sacked the temple and destroyed everything, their dreams were crushed, but the prophets had whispered that though the tree of David had been cut down, there would be a shoot that would grow from the stump again. They believed that God was going to raise up another leader from the lineage of King David. For the priests, they wanted their lineage to demonstrate that they could trace their heritage back to Aaron and serve God's people in his house. It was an act of holiness and leadership and God's promises that made genealogies a big deal. All right, enough of that. A couple things that are interesting about the genealogies. A few things in Matthew's genealogy. Number one, 
where you're absolutely trying to demonstrate that he should be the king. And I'll show you this in a few minutes. But another thing that is interesting is the way this genealogy is set up, it's a little bit peculiar. It's broken up into three sets of 14, and Matthew wants you to see that. Look with me in verse 17. Matthew says this, Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David. Okay, so the first group of 14, it goes from Abraham to David. All right, the second group of 14, all right? And 14 from David to exile... All right, so that's not good. Exile's hard. Exile's when the city was burned, people were deported, you were taken off as slaves, your land was sold, and the temple was destroyed. All right, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So David, in a very peculiar fashion, sets his genealogy of Jesus up into three big blocks. It's kind of neat. Why 14? Well, Brick and I researched that this week. It was kind of interesting. I don't know if there's any gold nugget, but one of the things is it's kind of a fun play on David's name. King David has three consonants, D, V, and D. And in Hebrew, letters were given uh, a numerical value. And if you put together the, the numbers of David's name, the letters that would correspond to the numbers, if you add that up, David's name comes up with a sum of 14. And so I think Matthew found that and thought that was a really clever way to promise that Jesus was a king after David, that he was coming in David's way. Another thing that I thought was cool is that three groups of 14 would be the same as six groups of seven. And that would mean the seventh group of seven is about to come. In other words, if you looked at these lifespans, like as a, as a normal group of a week, seven, which is really important to the Jewish people ever since Genesis chapter 1, then what you would realize is six series of sevens had already come, and Jesus is launching the next one. I know that sounds boring, but what it would mean is that he is bringing the new Sabbath that he's starting the year of Jubilee, that he's the, he's the seventh seven, that he is bringing on a new season as God took on his throne to rule creation. Now Jesus is bringing a new creation to rule again. Well, nobody will ever know until we get to heaven and can ask Matthew, hey, why did you do that? But those are a couple of fun possibilities. Something else that's interesting to me when we take a look at the genealogy of Jesus, and this is unusual in ancient genealogies. There's all these boring men there are four ladies whose names pop out in this genealogy. It's uncommon to list ladies in these Jewish genealogies, but there are four ladies in the genealogy of Jesus. Can you see them? I saw a lot of heads go down. Where? People are looking for them. I'll show them to you. I'll help you find them. The first one is verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Okay? So the first one is this lady named Tamar. The second lady, her name appears in verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. The third one also appears in verse 5. Whose mother was uh, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. So we have Tamar, Rahab, Ruth. The last one comes in verse 6. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, I don't know if you know this story. But in Samuel's writing, King David had an affair with a woman named Bathsheba. He wound up killing her husband. It was a very low period in David's life. It was a time when he uh, was far from God. But God redeemed that and ultimately Bath, uh, Bathsheba bore a son, King Solomon, and became part of David's lineage. But, so she's named Uriah's wife, probably to avoid some of the black eye of the memory of what she and David did. But these four ladies are mentioned in the genealogy. Why are these four ladies mentioned in Matthew's genealogy? It raises your curiosity, so you explore it. And I think there's two good answers. One, all four of these ladies had one thing in common, and that was 
for them to bear children, there had to be some miraculous intervention. And with that miraculous intervention, in some cases, there was a bit of, uh, there was a, a, bit of a conspiracy. Okay? Well, with, with Bathsheba's case, the child that she and David conceived died. But the Lord restored them, and they eventually had King Solomon. With Tamar, she had to deceive uh, her groom to have a child. You should read the story. Ruth, her life had been turned to bitterness. She was so destitute. Naomi's life had been nicknamed, her mother-in-law's name had become bitter. And then God restored her, gave her Boaz, her kinsman, redeemer. And then she was able to conceive and have a child. And Rahab, boy, Rahab has that that position in Jericho. I mean, she's nicknamed Rahab the harlot in Jericho, but God used her to save all God's people and start the conquest of the Holy Land. She converted and had faith in God. But the other thing, so not only are all four of these ladies, people who uh, their story is marked by a little bit of a rumor mill or distance, which think about this, that would be very important for all the people who are writing Mary off and saying that God could not do a thing through Mary because Mary is bringing a child before she and Joseph are married. Well, be careful about the rumor mill because the rumor mill circulated for, for all four of these ladies at some point in their lives, but God did great through, things through them. Same's true with this girl, Mary. But the other thing that I think is important about these four ladies is that for these four ladies, they came to Israel from the outside. And in Matthew's gospel, he wants you to show you that King Jesus came to fulfill what God promised Abraham. He came to bring God's people, Israel, salvation, but he was never intending to stop there. In Matthew's gospel, King Jesus would rule all nations. In fact, how does Matthew's gospel end? All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, I command you, go and make disciples of who? All nations. Matthew has always had an intention to show how Jesus came to redeem the nations. And all four of these ladies came and blessed Israel from the outside. They're women of faith who God brought in from the nations. And so it's interesting that they stand up as a peculiar thing that you would notice if you're reading a Jewish genealogy. Now, what would happen if we put all these stories together? We won't, we won't cover all of them, but, but clearly Matthew wants you to know three stories from the genealogy. So if every genealogy is really a collection of people whose stories come together to be one big story, one beautiful story, well, what do you get in this genealogy of King Jesus? How is this a story of hope, a story of eternal hope? How does this give you any hope? Well, I'll show you. Look with me in verse 17. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 17, this is what the Scripture says. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to exile, in Babylon, and 14 from exile to Messiah. So I want to give you three landmarks for the genealogy, and then we're going to explore the three landmarks so I can show you how Jesus really is this Old Testament promise fulfilled, something that God's people had hoped for for so long. Abraham is your first landmark. David is going to be your second, and your third will be exile. The thing that you recognize as you look at all these names from history and then as we go forward over the next several weeks, chapter by chapter in Matthew, and we start to see these whisperings of Old Testament prophets, we'll recognize that when Jesus was born, this was something that God had planned for before the world began. This is something that had always been determined by God. In other words, the baby in the stable didn't just happen. It was in God's mind. I want to show you some scripture passages that illustrate how Jesus was the fulfillment of what God had always been doing right up to you. You are part of God's story now. And I want to show you the sovereign hand of God who knew what he was doing when he brought Jesus. He knows what he's doing with you too. And the hope that he brought to the world in Jesus is your hope today too. 
And so as we celebrate and light candles and buy gifts and light up trees, like as we celebrate the birth of Christ, you are celebrating the moment when God's will and His sovereign plan came to the earth and began to bear fruit. And I want that to give you confidence and hope that that same sovereign, strong God, He loves you and He knows what you're going through and He knows where you're headed He knows what's next and He can lead you through this too. Let me show you a couple of scripture passages that highlight the sovereignty and the will of God over time. Galatians 4, 5. Scripture says this about Jesus. But when the, time set, when the set time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might have adoption to sonship. I'm used to that passage saying in the fullness of time. In the NIV these days it says, when the time set had fully come. But I want you to know that God knew exactly when Christ would be born. When Isaiah preached and proclaimed the birth of Christ, he didn't know, but God did. 1 Peter 1, 19-21. But the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. It's powerful to me. Ephesians, I want you to see that you were chosen in Christ, that the plan of His redemption in the cross was known before Adam took the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Ephesians 1, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in His sight and love. John chapter 17, verse 24, the prayer that Jesus prayed in John's gospel before his death. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus was not a created being. He's part of the triune God. In fact, before a thing was created, the Father and Son had strong love and it was determined that Jesus would come to redeem us. Matthew 25, verse 34, the parable of the talents that were given to the servants, some faithful, some unfaithful. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I read these passages to show you that the birth of Jesus and even the death of Jesus and your opportunity to be in Jesus were determined by God before the creation of the world. He had already determined to show His love to the world through His sacrifice that He would become our substitute to take our place before we had even begun to sin. I want this to give you hope and confidence that this story that God started with Adam, the story that God is keeping through you, like it's a story that God has always watched and He's always known the outcome. In Christ's birth and His place in this genealogy, it wasn't random or reckless. It wasn't a compensation plan. It wasn't a rescue plan that God had to think up. It was something that God had determined from the foundation of the world as a way to show His love and His character, His strength, His justice, and His might. As a way to make a family, He sent Jesus. And so I return to these three landmarks in the genealogy. How does the big story of God play out in this genealogy? You have Abraham and David, and exile. Abraham, David, and exile. Matthew 
warns you before you start to read about the teachings of Jesus and the healings, the miracles, walking on water, feeding 5,000, before you start to see his love to humanity, his mercy and his kindness, before you watch him suffer on the cross and call disciples to himself, Matthew wants you to know that Jesus was born to fulfill the hopes and the promises that God gave to Abraham, that the nation had for David, and that everybody dreamed of when they suffered in exile. Abraham, David, exile. I want to review Abraham's story. Do you know Abraham's story? After the flood, the world turned back to sin. And it was highlighted in a moment at the Tower of Babel, when people's pride stood against God and we wanted to serve our own glory, not His. Well, God scattered the nations and confused our languages, created nations at the Tower of Babel. And while the world was in a ruckus and a mess, while I believe the stories of idolatry were being propagated and spread around the nations, God looked down and chose one man, Abram, to become the seed that he would build his family on. He he drew Abram out of the nations and promised him descendants and lands and that he would become a blessing to all nations. And these covenant promises became the foundation for God's people throughout the entire Old Testament. That he would make descendants, and they did. While they were slaves in Egypt, oh, they multiplied. They would give them land, and that's exactly what Joshua did. He brought them into the promised land, but they lost it in the exile. And would they ever be a blessing to the nations? Well, God promised Abraham land, descendants, and a blessing. And all God's people knew that they were God's people because, listen carefully, they were sons of Abraham. And yet John the Baptist stands at the Jordan River and tells hard-hearted Pharisees whose DNA connected to Abraham, don't claim to be a son of Abraham. God can raise up stone, from these stones sons of Abraham. And God would raise up from the Gentiles, people like me and you, sons of Abraham, daughters of Abraham, people of faith who trusted God and would respond to His voice, not because of our bloodline or our DNA, but because God always dreamed to make a family that was a global family to redeem the nations. Abraham was drawn out of the nations that he could redeem the nations, and Matthew's gospel shows us how. Now we'll go to all the nations with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's our charge as a church to take our place in that. But it was the birth of Jesus that allowed you to see the seed of Abraham fulfilled. The promise that God made to Abraham that we would be a blessing, it comes to fruition when Abraham's true son is born, King Jesus. The second landmark in this genealogy, the second big curve, a great story, is King David. King David. David was a man after God's own heart. He sinned, he made mistakes, but he never worshipped a pagan god. His heart was fully devoted to his God. But there was a moment in David's life, a very peculiar moment, monumental, where David, the best king Israel ever had, was given a promise from God. God told King David that if he would follow God's covenant, then Israel would never fail to have an everlasting king on David's throne. Well, we know that that didn't come true. Solomon sinned. And the nation spun off into idolatry. And when you read the Old Testament book of 2 Kings, you're going to see that one king after the other, after the other, after the other sinned. They all broke the covenant. It was a mess. And Israel was sent into exile and punished for it. But they never lost hope that there might be a a descendant of David to return to the throne in Jerusalem. And Matthew wants you to know that this 
peasant baby, this child that was born in a manger in Bethlehem, was actually a descendant of his father David. Born in Bethlehem, David's city. Worshipped by wise men, magi, kings from the east, because for all nations he would become a Davidic king who would rule the world. He preached about the kingdom of heaven because he came to establish the kingdom of heaven. The branch, the shoot from the stump of David that the prophets had hoped for, it was born to Mary and Joseph under the watch of magi and shepherds in the city of Bethlehem. And Matthew wanted you to know, 14 generations from Abraham to David, but the Davidic hope is held in King Jesus. And I just want to ask for just a second that you would think about the weight of that. Jesus, the king like no other. When he came to Jerusalem, they didn't give him the throne. They didn't give him a golden crown. He was lifted up on a cross and given a crown of thorns. But in an act of self-sacrifice and love, he made a kingdom that will never cease, never stop, never be brought down, never be conquered or undone. The last landmark in the genealogy is the exile. Fourteen generations from David to exile. This is interesting because this is where the gospel of Matthew begins. People destroyed. Slaves. Everyone deported. And hope was lost. A remnant returned. Some 70 years after the exile. A remnant returned. But things were never properly restored. If you asked Israel in the first century, they would tell you they were not living out the promises of God. They didn't feel fulfilled. They didn't feel like the exile was over. Something still wasn't right. They were ruled by Roman overlords. Their national religion was wandering far from God, more and more built on hypocrisy and legalism. They didn't know the language to choose, but they ever bit felt as much in exile as their ancestors had. And that's where the Gospel of Matthew begins. That King Jesus has come to get them out of exile. The exile is ending now because the king has been born. Because God is about to overthrow the overlord. Not, not the Roman governor. Sin itself. In the cross that is anticipating the birth of Jesus, sin's going to be undone. Your sin's forgiven and mine. And I want to show you how this plays out. Abraham, David, exile. God promised Abraham a family. And I want the church to know that you are God's family. If you've lost loved ones or feel all alone, if you're separated or isolated in this point in your life, if you're lonesome or grieving at this point in your life, I want you to know you're not alone. You're part of God's family. And it doesn't matter whether your father and mother were believers. It doesn't matter if you're a first-generation believer. It doesn't matter if you've done a fantastic job with your Christianity or if you are dog-paddling, treading water, trying to keep your head above water, just learning the ropes of Christianity. You are God's family. You're the sons and daughters of Abraham because of your faith, not because of your works, not because of your good deeds, but because you put your trust in Jesus. You are adopted into God's family. God made a promise in Genesis 12 to Abraham of a family, and you are it because of Jesus. And not only that, not only are you a full-blooded family member, not only your brothers and sisters, but there are other people out there today that God wants to bring into his family, prodigal sons that he'd love to bring home. And it's our privilege to have the gospel story to share with them, to bring them into the fold of God's family. To let them come and worship with us this Advent and every year from here on out. So they could know their heritage as part of the family of God. Abraham, a family. David, a king. 
All your life you've looked for the leader to follow. And so have I. Sometimes you've assumed that role. You've wanted to lead yourself. But ultimately, we all know that we should fall under God's rule. And we want to be led by the living God. And King Jesus came to set up the kingdom of heaven to set us free. So that he would be the king. And that he could rule our lives. And it's our honor, joy, privilege to be part of a kingdom that stands stark in the face of the kingdoms of the earth. A kingdom that's not driven by bloodlust or wealth, power, greed. The kingdom of heaven. A kingdom that has territory on every continent. A kingdom that is loved by the wealthiest and the homeless. A kingdom that cuts apart class structures or anything else that would divide us. You and I are under the rule of King Jesus. From this point forward, for the rest of my life, He's my Lord. He directs my paths and He governs my step. He watches over me and defends me. Because Jesus Christ was born to the line of David to be the King. So as we worship this Advent, we worship the King. And the last bit here, exile. You and I, very much like the folks in Bethlehem in the first century, suffer the pain of exile. We know what it's like to suffer from sin, brokenness. We live in a world that I think is strongly characterized by sin and anger, division, hate right now. We understand that exile hurts. We understand suffering. And as the weeks go on in these Advent series, some of the prophecies that we'll dig through speak directly to the pain of our exile, to the suffering that sin's brought. But I want to let you know that King Jesus was born to bring us out of exile, out of sin, out of hopelessness, back to a home, to a family, to his family. So as we read this genealogy, the story of the family line of Jesus I want to launch a sermon series about an eternal hope. I want you to know that the hope that Jesus brings to our lost brothers and sisters today, that we're taking to them this week scattered on mission, the hope that God brings to you and your family this Advent season, it wasn't accidental. It was something that He had planned from the foundation of the world. And so as we get geared up for Christmas, I want you to understand that that hope is yours to cling to. A family, a king, and an end to your exile. You're free from your old slave master of sin. Free to be adopted into God's family. Free to be under the rule and the reign of King Jesus, a king that loves you. And this Sunday, I just want to invite you into that. So if there's anybody that came to worship with us today, I said, Ben, I'm I'm here for the first time. Honestly, I'm very far from God. I just knew I needed to be in church. I want to tell you, thanks for coming. And I also want to tell you, I want you to discover God today. Give your life to the Lord. Don't don't run from Him. If God is chasing you, be found. Stop today and give your life to the Lord. We would love that more than anything else that could happen in this church service today. We'd love for you to be restored to God Almighty, to His family. And so here as we wrap up this sermon and this service, in just a moment we're going to be standing and singing, but I want to give you some instructions. What I want everybody to do today is I want everybody to just respond as God's nudging your heart. If God's calling you to give your life to Him for the first time, to become a Christian, you're ready to be baptized, you're ready to follow the Lord, you're ready to give Him your life, then I want to invite you to come and share that with me while we're singing and standing. 
Just privately come and whisper that in my ear. Let me pray with you and let's start talking about that. Or find another believer or just where you sit on your pew today. Give your life to God Almighty. If there's something else that God's stirring in your heart to do, a way that He wants you to enjoy this story that you've been born into now, this family tree that He's building through you, then I want you to just respond to it. So I want to ask you now, would you bow your heads with me? I want to pray over you. And then I want to ask you with courage to respond to this worship service in whatever way the Lord leads you. Lord, I ask for your blessing on us. Father, that as we search our own souls and our own hearts today, that we would be responsive to your Holy Spirit. That we would do whatever it is that you've dreamed for us to do. That we'd be faithful to you, Lord. God, if you're calling us to salvation, I pray that you'd give us the courage to let go of our life and find it in you. To lose it for your sake. To give it totally to you. That we'd take up our cross. Lord, I just ask that if there's an act of obedience that you're calling us to, that you'd make it clear in this time of response. Lord, so that we can do that thing for you, so that we can say yes to you. Lord, I ask now that your spirit would move in our church family. We give you thanks for Christ and the story of the redemption of all creation. We ask now that you help us to be faithful in our part of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.